Welcome to Cast Conversations, a bi-weekly podcast for school leaders by school leaders. Each of our episodes will engage practitioners and thought leaders in conversations about issues, ideas, and innovations relevant to today's busy educators. My name is Rosie O'Brien Voitek, and I'm the current president for the Connecticut Association of Schools. Our special guest today is attorney Tom Mooney, who chairs the education law practice group of Shipman and Goodwin. Most Connecticut administrators and school leaders have read his book, A Practical Guide to School Law, which is in its eighth edition. Tom writes frequently on school law topics. He teaches law and public education at the University of Connecticut's Law School and graduate courses on educational law and personnel management at the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut. His acclaimed legal mailbag column has been a staple at the CAS Bulletin and CAS Weekly News Blast for the past 16 years. We're very excited to have Tom Mooney joining us today for this CAS conversation. So welcome, Tom. Thank you. So I always learn so much from you every time I listen to you, and so let's just get right into it. Starting with the 2017 legislative session, what are the most important legal changes and what impact will they have on Connecticut schools and school leaders? Well, to start with, we don't know uh, (laughs) because uh, the General Assembly is still deadlocked and unable to pass a budget. And um, the budget implementer bill historically has made some significant substantive changes in law unrelated to the budget because it's another opportunity for the General Assembly to mess around. Uh, So all we know is what's happened so far. And what's happened so far is uh, incremental change in uh, school law. Uh, There was, in this very difficult budget situation, talk of significant mandate relief. uh, And uh, we do see some modest changes, uh, but we still have concerns. One change is in alternative education. And um, as you may know, last year, the General Assembly uh, said that when students are expelled, the alternative educational opportunity now must conform with the requirements of alternative education, which is 900 hours a, a year, and that's very different from the typical 10 hours of alternative programming that an expelled student would receive. Uh, so in the name of mandate relief, the General Assembly said, well, you can either do that if you provide for alternative education, or you can file guidelines. Uh, promulgated by the State Department of Education, which will come out on August 15th. Well, it's August 24th, (laughs) or uh, 25th, and we're still waiting, and we don't know um, whether the the 900 hours will be modified in any way. And the practical effect is that it makes it very unattractive to expel students, and I think that's the underlying uh, political motivation. Uh, But uh, that's the uh, situation we have there. Uh, We also see, uh, yet again, uh, a postponement of the high school graduation requirements. That's, I don't know, four four years running. Uh, And um, we do see uh, modification in the laws concerning professional development. There was a significant um, paring down of the required topics for professional development, and now we're left with six mandatory, and then everything else is optional. So that is some flexibility. Do you and know what those six topics are? I happen to, yes. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, and I'm not speaking from memory, but okay. I wrote them down. Good. Uh, drugs and alcohol awareness, health and mental health risk reduction, 
school violence prevention, suicide prevention and bullying, life-saving measures including CPR, mandated reporting obligations, and identification of and interventions for dyslexic students. That is now a much reduced list of required topics for professional development. Uh, that particular legislative uh, effort is symptomatic of the General Assembly's approach just generally, and every year they have some new good idea to impose obligations on school districts. So that list over the years grew and grew and grew to the point where it was impossible. And uh, so now in the context of mandate relief, they've undone some of those requirements, but we still have those uh, six topics that are required. And the last topic, and I don't know how this would affect um, individual principals, but uh, first they imposed regional, uniform regional calendars and now they've said those are optional. So that um, uh, gives oh, a little more <laughs> flexibility. <laughs> right. Unless you've got, I, and I, I said, oh, man, because um, a lot of our teachers in my school have, their families are in other school districts, and so if you're trying to plan your vacations and oh, things, mm -hmm. it makes it really difficult if you're in one district, but your kids are in another district, and your husband might work in a third district. Sure. So I was kind of hoping we would stay on the same calendar, but... Well, you may. It's, <laughs> it's optional. <laughs> and that's, that's an overview of what's happened to date, but we wait with... Uh, great concern over the uh, adoption of a budget and how that's going to affect school funding as well as the additional legal requirements that may be imposed through the budget implementer bill. Great. Okay, so since you've already talked a little bit about professional development, let's talk about what advice that you might give to school administrators and school leaders as they work with teachers. Um, that could be anything with teacher evaluation practices, more on professional development or other support structures that you have. When uh, school administrators work with teachers to improve their uh, craft, I think it's important always to have the mindset that you're there to help improve instruction and help the teachers improve instruction. As I've uh, worked with uh, administrators over the years, I've noticed that there's a difference between documenting efforts to help a teacher and building a case. Uh, sometimes mm -hmm. I get the call where a principal has made up his or her mind and said, do I have enough? Mm -hmm. And that's really not the way to approach these issues of professional development and supporting teachers. You need to be fair and you need to be there to help and provide every resource to help that teacher improve. And only after you've adopted that mindset, you've provided the help, and there's still not the adequate improvement, then you have a responsibility to move forward and hold the teacher accountable. And in that regard, you may know that since uh, July of 2014, we've have had a new standard in the teacher tenure law, ineffectiveness, which is subject to new rules. And interestingly, the legislation provides that if a teacher is deemed to be ineffective, they have a right to a hearing, but that hearing is limited to 12 hours. And I sit here uh, as a person who's gone through tenure hearings of 20 or 25 days, yeah. and now an ineffectiveness uh, hearing is supposedly limited to 12 hours, although actually when it was being um, considered at my urging, they added except uh, for extensions for good cause shown, because I think as a matter of due process, you have to be able to give the parties 
a fair chance to be heard. And uh, as you probably know, in a disciplinary matter, the school district goes first. So I could just envision a circumstance where it takes us 11 hours uh, <laughs> to present our case, and then we turn to the teacher and say, good luck, you have 60 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, statute does provide for extensions. Uh, but in that regard, it's critically important um, to keep in mind the questions that are posed through the legislation. If a teacher is deemed to be ineffective, the teacher has a right to a hearing. But given the severe constriction in the time allowed, uh, the questions are very limited. And the three questions are, was there compliance with the evaluation plan? Were the judgments about the teacher's performance made in good faith? And is the conclusion of ineffectiveness reasonable in light of the evidence presented? For principles, that first requirement is key. On the one hand, we have this new procedure that gives us an opportunity to sever employment of a teacher who's not effective in a abbreviated process. The construct was that we go through a lengthy evaluation process. It's very time-consuming and burdensome. We shouldn't have to do that twice right? and, and, and the hearing. Uh, but the corollary is that you need to make sure that you follow the plan because only if you follow the plan will the hearing officer credit your conclusion that the teacher is ineffective. And if you haven't given the teacher fair support in accordance with the requirements of the plan, the hearing officer will find that you failed in your burden to show that the teacher is ineffective. So it's critically important to understand your teacher evaluation plan and follow it faithfully. Great, great advice. Okay, so every time you speak to administrators, whether it's at CAS or different workshops that I've been in with you, you always have a list of scenarios and situations that really help to bring issues to the forefront and make us aware of critical things that we need to know as administrators. So from your work and from your perspective, what are three really important scenarios or situations that we might face that um, we should be aware of? so that we can make the best decisions for our teachers, our students, and our schools. And yourself. And yes, that, thank you. And that's an important yes. uh, uh, additional consideration. Thank you. Because as I provide um, advice to school administrators, I, I want to make sure that they are making good decisions. And so I have three situations in which I have specific advice to offer. Perfect. First is uh, mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. But over and over, we see that denying a mistake or trying to cover it up ends up making the situation far worse. I can't tell you how many circumstances where someone's made a mistake and if they own it, we work with it and we move on. But when they don't own it and when they particularly if they misrepresent to try to cover it up, then now we have a whole separate issue that involves moral decisions right. uh, that can put someone's employment at risk. So don't be worried about making mistakes. We all make mistakes. In fact, just as an aside, my mentor is Brian Clemo, and he told me years ago that people don't hire him to be perfect. They hire him for his batting average. <laughs> and so we all have to make decisions, mm -hmm. and we just have to consider not perfection, but what's our batting average, so that when we do make a mistake, we don't get all defensive about it, but we just deal with it and move on. And maybe even try to get out in front of it. and Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, by disclosing it, mm -hmm. um, not waiting to be discovered. In fact, right. just as another aside, when we're presenting a case in a mm -hmm. litigation, 
sometimes the facts are good and sometimes the facts are bad, we always make sure on our direct case to put out the bad facts because the impact of those bad facts is much softer than if you don't talk about the bad facts and then on cross-examination those bad facts are brought out. Right. So as you say, if you've made a mistake, not only owning it, but reaching out mm -hmm. and saying, you know, here's a problem and I'd like your help fixing it will make that uh, possible to get past more easily. The second major concern I have is social media and particularly uh, parent use of social media. And sadly, there are circumstances now where there's been a feeding frenzy. Somebody gets on the wrong side of somebody and they start talking about it on social media and it uh, takes on a life of its own. And that's just a very difficult challenge and I don't purport to have the simple solution. But I can say that you have to, as you said earlier, be proactive mm -hmm. and address these issues and reach out even to some of the people who are most obnoxious. Because I find that the anonymity, even although their name might be on it, just the distance of posting something, people can be completely unreasonable and rude. When you sit them down and look them in the face and show them that, yes, you're a human mm -hmm. being and uh, you're accepting them as a human being, then the tone of the conversation becomes very different. So I think being proactive in the social media campaigns is important. And the third issue is just to be uh, an amateur psychologist as you are <laughs> doing your work as a school administrator. And um, people... Yeah, you're sitting in my office, and I, I, I have to just stop and say, I've often wanted a couch right over there. Oh. <laughs> well, good. Just for exactly then, the point that you're making. Then you're on target, because <laughs> conflict is inevitable, but it's how we deal with conflict that's important. And it's so important to be respectful of uh, opinions, even those uh, that you think are wrong, because conflict can be resolved sometimes simply by giving people an opportunity to be heard. One of my standard recommendations is when someone says something stupid and makes a request that's uh, unreasonable, rather than focusing on why it's unreasonable, you should ask, why do they want it? Because <laughs> as soon as you get into the why they're asking the question, then you have much more flexibility in addressing their concern in an entirely different way. Interesting. Okay, so um, you talked a little bit about social media, and so I'm just curious because I agree with you wholeheartedly. It takes on a life of its own, especially when things start to go viral. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions or warnings for administrators who might be using Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, social media to get their messages out, um, whether they're professional or not, and um, dealing with situations in which teachers, students, and parents are using social media. Well... The first issue, and you don't need me to tell you this, but it may be helpful to remind people that personal use of social media has led to uh, any number of self-inflicted wounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, you just have to know that whatever you put out there is going to be on the front page in the newspaper. And uh, so you just have to be very careful. We just read, was it yesterday, about the wife of the Treasury Secretary who was on social media, mm -hmm. and first she was bragging about all her designer oh, labels. right, right, yeah. And then when uh, someone took issue with that, she was uh, dismissive and condescending. And I don't think she'll ever recover in terms mm -hmm. of how people perceive her, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps correctly. 
Uh, so self-inflicted yeah. wounds are something to be avoided. You just have to be careful. But it's also important to understand what the rules are and um, that not all speech on social media is protected by the First Amendment. When teachers are on social media in a way that disrupts the educational process, they can be held accountable. And when students are on social media, they can be held accountable for bullying. Okay, so let's switch to another topic. How do you see the potential shift of the teacher's retirement system funding to municipalities playing out in the future should it come to pass? Well, we are in a new normal and finances in Connecticut are going to be a problem uh, for the foreseeable future. On this particular issue of shifting pension costs, I don't think that's going to happen because it's fundamentally unfair. And it's fundamentally unfair because the teacher pension system is governed by statute. And when you impose costs on someone, they should have some ability to deal with those costs. But these are straight out statutory requirements. And if the General Assembly uh, wants to change the rules, then they have to do that by statute. But shifting those costs without changing the rules is fundamentally unfair. More generally, I think we have to keep in mind that the budgetary problems are practical, but they're also political in nature. And if we want to maintain quality education in Connecticut, we have to be heard. People who oppose new spending are heard, and we need to be heard as well. And our parents are an important resource in terms of making sure that we get the necessary funds for education. Absolutely. I, I so agree with you. So how do you see the changing priorities at the federal level impacting Connecticut? What legal issues do you see coming down the pike? Well, in that regard, I think we're going to see less and less of the federal government for a couple of reasons. First, they're dealing with their own budget issues, and second, at least the current administration, I think, is more interested in a hands-off approach. We saw some of that through the reauthorization of what used to be the No Child Left Behind Act, and now it's the Every Student Succeeds Act, where the federal role is being reduced. And I think that will continue. I think our, our issues are really at the state level. Okay. Are there other issues at the state level we should be aware of? Well, we've been uh, talking about them, and it's a combination of the budget and trying to stay on top of the legislative changes. Yeah. The budget's a huge one, right? Yes. I so agree. So I guess as I'm thinking about the coming school year and I'm thinking about all of us going back into, you know, just hitting the ground running, I'm wondering what is the big one, the that one issue that administrators should be aware of that might not even be on our radar screens at this point in time? Is there any big ticket item that we should keep in the forefront? Well, as I reflected on this, I must say that the word is email <laughs> uh, because everything we write as school administrators is a public record and the ease and informality of email is an invitation to poor judgment and it's as simple as some parent is giving you trouble and you just email the superintendent you wouldn't believe what this idiot said and uh, that's a public document now FERPA protects some of that from others so if you mm -hmm. comment on a parent or a student, you don't have to disclose that to the general public, but that parent has every right to all records involving his or her child's education. So we just have to be vigilant in the use of email 
and avoid being sarcastic or clever. We just need to consider email when we're doing our public's work to be a tool to do that work with the understanding that you've now created a record that will be available and will be looked at. So I know it's not a new thing, but it's so ubiquitous a problem that I just thought it was important to provide one more reminder that we just have to be careful because everything can be fine until mm-hmm. it's not. You can That's go, so true. <laughs> you can go for five years yeah. and no one cares what clever emails you write, but as soon as somebody makes that request, it's too late and mm-hmm. you're going to be held accountable for whatever you wrote. Exactly. My husband is a technology coordinator in a school district, and every once in a while, they have to go through and dig out the records because some parent has requested them. So you yes. never, And I, I think the one thing that a lot of people don't think about is how once you've written an email and you've sent it, it can take on a life of its own, like we've been saying, but also a lot of things on social media, emails never go away, and you've left your digital footprint, and it's hard That's to get right. rid of it. The delete button is misleading. (laughs) Absolutely. I love that. I'm going to remember that one um, to tell my kids to delete. I like that. So is there anything else that I didn't ask you today that you think that principals and school leaders should know for the 2017-2018 school year? No, I think your questions have been very much on point, and I just want to wish everyone a successful school year 2017-18. And thank you for talking with me. Great. Thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. As always, you've given me and I'm sure other school administrators and leaders a lot to think about. Thank you for joining us for this episode of CAS Conversations. This podcast is brought to you by the Connecticut Association of Schools, serving schools and their leaders since 1935.